So we're so glad to have Josh Wilson with us today. Josh, many of you know, in fact, probably some of you could come up here and introduce him much better than I can because you've got all kinds of history, but uh, we appreciate that. We're so thankful for his willingness to be here today. Josh is a graduate of Clark Summit University, uh, also uh, did some work at um, the East Stroudburg University, Toledo, uh, did a lot of his uh, teaching credential work there as an MA in Hebrew. Uh, and uh, from the University of Michigan, and he's currently working on a Ph.D. program as well, along with teaching. Uh, he and his wife are at the Geneva Classic Christian School in Manhattan, and uh, just really appreciate all of that he is doing, and, and, and um, we were talking a little bit this morning about his teaching this year and how different that was at the end of the school year with all of the online things. But when Josh is not discussing literature and teaching, he loves to play the guitar. And so we appreciate that as well. And uh, Josh has this interesting goal in his life. And I don't know about you, but this sounds really ambitious to me. He wants to uh, climb the 46 peaks, uh, especially the high peaks that are in the Adirondack Mountains. Now, his dad told, has told me that he's done two so far. So he's got a long way to go, but that's, that's great. That's ambitious, isn't it? Josh, it's, it's just really great to have you here. It was good to get to know you a little bit this morning, and uh, Lord bless you as you come and uh, you share the Word of God with us this morning. Great to have you here. Okay, well, um, I was thinking back, I was doing a little reminiscing. I think I started coming to Heritage in 1992. And if I did my math right, uh, that means uh, this is 27 years later. And I have never preached here at Heritage, but the first time I ever spoke was here uh, in this room at Heritage. First time I ever spoke in front of a church. And I think I was in ninth grade, and I remember it was the most nervous I've ever been uh, to speak in front of a group of people. And this place was packed out. And I stood up in, uh, behind the podium, and they say sometimes when people are very nervous, their knees get weak, which I always thought was overstatement. But I actually felt my knees bend, and I thought I was going to fall on the ground before I said a word. And I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, and somehow, miraculously, I didn't fall over. And it went fine. But that was the peak, and I'm not kidding, that was the most nervous I have ever, had ever been. Since then, it's gone downhill. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking somebody might have noticed I almost fell because you have a stool up here for me, <laughs> which is great. Um, so no falling. That was a great idea. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know if I have a home church, but if I did, it would be heritage for sure. Uh, we've moved around a lot, uh, but I did uh, my high school years here. Really, I was formed spiritually. Uh, under the ministry of Tony Tice, of uh, Pastor Glenn, uh, for sure, and pastors and the people here, many of you, uh, are still here. And so this is where, um, this is where I grappled with my faith and uh, became, I think, in many ways, who I am as a Christian. So heritage is very close to my heart, and I'm really thankful uh, Pastor Glenn has asked me to speak to you today. It's a privilege. It took 27 years, and as you can hear, a lot of work outside, a lot of college, but thank you for finding me acceptable, finally, uh, to speak to you. Well, let's turn to Psalm 137. As I tell my students, open to the middle of the Bible, and you'll probably hit Psalms. 
And let's read together. Uh, in Psalm 137, I have an NIV Bible, but whatever you have will probably be good. And uh, <clears throat> in Psalm 137, we read this. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Uh, verse 2, there on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Let's pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word today in uh, a world that's shifting and changing, uh, as really it always uh, has and always will. Your word uh, remains true. And uh, David uh, says it's a, it's a rock, it's refreshing in a dry place. It's a fixed point. Uh, God, we need uh, your word in our lives, especially uh, today. And I pray, God, that I would not get in the way of what you want to do uh, with your word. May it correct and rebuke and teach and train, uh, maybe even in ways uh, that I uh, don't intend, uh, because that's what your word is. It's powerful. In reading it, there's blessing. And God, I pray uh, for your blessing on our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about uh, 2020, uh, it hit me that there were three times in Israel's history that I think were even more tumultuous than the times that we're experiencing now. Uh, even more difficult for the people. Uh, there was more cultural upheaval and more instability uh, for them uh, even than there is now. And of course, I say this because we're also living right now in a time in 2020 in which the values that have seemed like they're the glue holding America together, seem to be dissolving, or its institutions that we hold dear might seem compromised. And I think that regardless of one's political position, most people would agree uh, these are tumultuous and unsettling times for just about everyone. Now, I know that, uh, like me, in your mind, you know that God's Word is true and good and refreshing, but there's a difference between knowing something in your mind and experiencing it in your heart. Uh, David says in Psalm 119, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say just think and know that the Lord is good, but taste. And I think he's implying experience. And my hope today is that we will taste of God's word and not just know in our minds that God is good and that his word provides encouragement and rest and a foundation and, and truth, but that you will enter into that and experience um, and taste the goodness of God. Because in, in God's providence, he provided three times in Israel's history that, I mean, he took them through some outrageously difficult times so that as a church, in God's grace, we can look back and say, this was part of God's plan for the nation of Israel. He took them through this, and I think it was worse than anything that we have or will experience. And so now you're wondering, right, what are these three times? Some of you may have an idea already. But the three times I'm referring to are the period of the judges, first of all. Uh, roughly a 400-year period where there was no king, 
There was no unity among the tribes. At the end, there is a devastating civil war. Uh, leaders lack courage, like if you think of Sisera, if you're familiar with him, they lack courage, or they're morally compromised, like Samson, or they're just heartless, like the priest at the end of the book. And you can look back and see what he does. Uh, but not only that, but what's happening in Israel at this time is really a, a microchasm of what's happening all over the world. Uh, there are volcanoes, we know at this point in history, earthquakes, there's even a tsunami. Um, so there is international stability as well. For a period of almost 400 years, there's a cycle of sin and confusion. The second period that came to my mind after the period of the judges was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD uh, 70. And this was more of a spiritual um, issue, and uh, that's because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And uh, we have to kind of get our minds around what it w would have meant for the Jews in AD 70 to have their temple leveled. It says not one stone was left upon another. And uh, if you're anything like me, for, you know, that's a fact in your mind. But it was more than just a fact for the people who had worshipped there for generations. For them, the temple had priests, and so it was their connection to God. Um, it was their way to communicate with God. It was the only place you could perform sacrifices, which had become part of their DNA after generations and generations of taking family trips, pilgrimages to the temple, and the joy of coming in as a pilgrim with all of the other travelers and ascending the temple mount and performing your sacrifices all that was over because there was no place to perform your sacrifices. It provided a point of synthesis, a gathering place for everybody who considered themselves to be a Jew. And it was also a tangible, outward, visible sign of God's presence on the highest point of the holy city of Jerusalem, an undeniable point that you could look at and say, God is here because there is his temple. And when that was leveled, all of that ended their world must have felt absolutely demolished. But the one that I want to focus on today is the third one. And it actually comes in between those two. And it is the invasion of Jerusalem in the 600s. This came about according to the biblical writers because the people, especially the kings in Israel, had replaced God as their primary joy and object of worship. And so the prophetic voice in the Old Testament tells us that because they had prized something higher than God, that God was allowing invasion to happen and that they would be carried off uh, to Babylon. And, and at that time, not everyone in the land, but most of the people, at least in Jerusalem, were taken away. Now, the reason I want to focus on this last one in the 600s, uh, early 500s BC, is because that's the context for Psalm 137, which we just read a minute ago. In that psalm, they're in a foreign land, uh, and they're in despair about it. Nothing can go right as long as they're not in the right place, physically and geographically. Their comfortable points of reference are no longer there. Not just geographically, but socially, culturally, and religiously. They were disoriented, and everything had seemed to, to turn upside down. They were in unfamiliar territory. And to put a fine point on it, this is what many in our own country feel right now, increasingly unfamiliar or even hostile territory. And many Christians feel that the comfort, the stability, and the old values are not there anymore. And so, for that reason, 
I think this is a good time to look at what these uh, displaced captives feel and what they say in Psalm 137. Sometimes the Bible communicates by example, by showing us good examples, and sometimes it communicates by showing us bad examples. And I think this is one of the latter uh, for a few reasons. We're only going to see three things with the time that we have left. Um, three things about these captives and their praise and worship of God. And the first one is, uh, if you're a note taker, the first one is that their praise is contingent. What I mean by contingent, uh, in other words, is that uh, their praise of God depends on circumstances being a certain way. The context for their worship, they, they think, has to be in a certain place, has to be done in a certain way, or else they say, how can we praise God? Uh, if things aren't perfect. Now, as I was thinking about this, my mind went back again to, I think, ninth or maybe tenth grade at the oldest. Uh, my closest friend all through high school was, was Christy Walker, and I know that a lot of you know Christy. And uh, as I did just about every Sunday afternoon, I would go over to the Walker's house uh, just to hang out, watch TV or a movie or something like that. And I remember one Sunday uh, I did that, and Mel uh, was just about to come out the door and he said, hey, I need you and Christy to come with me to a church I'm preaching at tonight. Now, I don't usually argue with Mel uh, when he tells me something to do. And so I didn't argue with him. And I realized, well, I thought I was going to watch a movie, but now I'm going to uh, drive out to the country and go to a, a church. So I did. And uh, Christy and I went, and as we went into this small country church, the uh, pastor wasn't there, but the person in charge said, Mel, we also need you to lead music. I could tell who of you know Mel because he would say he can't even play a radio. And he turned around and he said, Josh, that's your job. And so I had never seen the church before. I didn't even know I was going to be going to church that night. And before I knew it, I was leading worship at a church. And so I, I looked at the board. They had a list of the hymns up there, you know, hymn 382 and so on. Uh, and so I grabbed a hymnal while I was waiting. And it, I think it was written in like, you know, like 1650 or something, because the pages crackled. It was like in calligraphy. It was an old, old hymnal. And uh, the last hymn was like hymn number 857. It was one of those old ones. They actually have like an 857 back there. Uh, so I looked it up. I had never seen or heard any of these hymns, and I still haven't heard of the ones that... And I was about to lead a congregation in singing songs I had never heard before. So I got up uh, with my hymnal and looked at where the music was going to come from, and apparently there was a piano player who was to start the music. And I did the only thing I had ever seen a hymn leader do, and that is to start doing this. <laughs> and I just started at a random time, hoping the piano player would follow along. Uh, I felt that I was doing the right thing. I literally couldn't read the words. I could read the words on the page, but I didn't know the song at all. Um, and so I mumbled through it somehow. But the lowest point of it for me was when I looked up and there was about a 10-year-old girl in the front row making fun of me with her hand. <laughs> and it was a humbling experience. I guess God needs to do that sometimes. Uh, but as I was thinking about that, uh, about this psalm, I, I thought about just the different contexts, contexts that exist for worship. And you know, whether your worship style is new or old, it's possible um, to... Uh, think that the context is the most important thing to ensure that uh, my worship has to take place in, in a certain way or in a certain setting in order for it to go forward. Now, I think a lot of us have been cured of that illusion uh, over the last several months because we've had to worship God in a different place than we're used to. 
but the captives here are not just thinking in terms of a comfortable room to worship God in. They're saying certain life circumstances have to be a, uh, a certain way. They have to be located you know, in Jerusalem. They have to be surrounded by uh, certain factors that are uh, amenable to them, that, are, that work to help facilitate uh, their worship. Let's look back again at these verses. They say, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. This is foreign land. Babylon is Mesopotamia. They, this isn't a place that Jews worship. They say, when we remembered Zion, verse 2, there on the poplars we hung our harps. They're not hanging them there for decoration. They're saying that it's done. You don't, we're not playing them anymore, so we're hanging, hanging up our cleats, you know, as it were, if you're an athlete. Uh, for there our captors asked uh, for us songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I was thinking about this. Is this a sanctified thought, you know, that they're having? Is this, are we to enter into this and bemoan this moment with them? And I think not. Where else do they expect to sing the song of the Lord? This whole world is a foreign land. Uh, they had gotten used to things being a certain way, and they had hinged their worship on um, circumstances being just so. Um, but, you know, if they were planning on only ever worshiping in the temple, stones only last so long. I know that they last an incredibly long time, thousands of years. Everything you see in this life is temporary. The people you see have souls that are not temporary, for sure. But everything physical, no matter how seemingly permanent, if you hinge your hope on it, you're hinging your hope to something temporary. God, on the other hand, is eternal. You can worship Him anywhere, at any time. He is unchanging. And if our trust and love for God um, are overtaken by our reminiscing about the good old times, our hearts were actually worshiping an idol. Maybe not a bad idol, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, maybe it was something good. Um, and yet these captives in Psalm 137 have an opportunity. Their idols have been stripped away from them. Pure worship is possible for this moment in a way that it probably wasn't before the catastrophes um, that they're bemoaning hit them. Worship that isn't tangled up with the worship of comfort or a building or any other temporal things. But unfortunately, they miss the opportunity. Um, the school year, uh, you know, I try to build in teachable moments with my kids. And uh, this school year, my daughter Gabby, she was in third grade this year, the fourth grade this year, and I were on our way to school. We ride the subway, uh, we ride the, the D train, if you're interested, or the, the, the B train, if you're, uh, on our way every day. And it's usually packed when we're on our way. And, you know, nobody, nobody talks, and I don't really feel like talking. I don't feel like talking most of the time anyway. But especially on my way to school, I don't usually feel like doing that. But um, I was feeling um, like my faith uh, was sort of relegated to this little corner of our lives. And I wanted my kids to see it brought out. And so I had my headphones, and Gabby and I put, each put in a headphone, and it, I was listening to praise and worship music. I think King of Kings by Hillsong. Now, I'm not a hand raiser. I'm just not. I still, I'm not. I didn't grow up that way. But I, I did some hand raising on the subway with Gabby that day. It, I, was, I was worshiping God with her. And I think she, <laughs> she was saying, I, she couldn't believe I was doing it. She said, Dad, people are looking at us. And I just decided not to care. Now, 
I'm not suggesting that you do something outrageous. But, and I'm certainly not the perfect example of how to worship God. But I encourage you, find ways to bring worship of God into new, new places and new ways in your life. Uh, just do that. He is the God of the subway. He is the God of uh, every place that you will go over the next several months. Uh, he is everywhere. Uh, their praise of God is contingent. It has to be in a certain place and done in a certain way. Secondly, uh, they've exalted the wrong thing. Read again verses 5 and 6. He says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. What's he exalting here? He says, If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Again, is that a sanctified thought? Those are sweeping words. Should Jerusalem, should the city be his highest joy? Uh, you know, I was thinking back to one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. I uh, went through a time when, uh, just last year, where I started watching them all over again because I, I love the Twilight Zone. The fifth episode is called Walking Distance, and it's still considered one of the most uh, popular episodes of the Twilight Zone. Uh, like number one or two on the list. I think the number one is where the, they look like pigs, you know, and anyway, it's like everyone else is weird and they're the only normal ones kind of thing. But this one is, is uh, different. What happens is a man is traveling up from New York and he, his car breaks down and he has to get his car fixed and while he's waiting, realizes that not too far away, uh, there is, his hometown uh, is like two miles away. And so he decides to walk there. And when he walks into town, uh, he goes to the ice cream parlor and asks for a milkshake. It's only 10 cents. And he says, well, you know, boy, this place hasn't changed much in 25 years. Uh, milkshake's only uh, 10 cents. Yeah, but slowly, he comes to realize that this town is frozen in time. He sees his old friends out playing. He sees his neighbor cutting the, the lawn like usual. Uh, he sees the band playing in the park and the vendors out. And eventually, he encounters himself. As a, as a young boy, and it's a fascinating scene because he's frightened of himself. He's terrified. And the point, I think, is that even Martin's younger self realizes that something is wrong. You can't really go back to the past, but even more importantly, if you do, if you could, it wouldn't be quite what you remembered. It wouldn't be quite the same. And I love the closing narrations that he uh, always happen at the end. If you're interested, here's the closing narration that uh, I just forgot his name. Some of you probably remember. What is it? What is it? Rod so Rod, Rod Stewart, isn't he the singer? Sterling. Sterling, thank you. This is why I ask. No, that's okay, Mom. Everything is functioning normal. Uh, <laughs> this is what uh, Rod Sterling says. Martin Sloan, age 36, vice president in charge of media, successful in most things, but not in the one effort that all men try at some time in their lives, trying to go home again. And also, like all men, perhaps there will be an occasion, maybe on a summer night sometime, when he'll look up from what he's doing and listen to the distant music of a calliope and hear the voices of laughter and the people and the places of his past. And perhaps across his mind there'll flit a little errant wish that a man might not have to become old, never outgrow the parks and the merry-go-rounds of his youth, and he'll smile then too because he'll know that it is just an errant wish, some wisp of memory not too important really, some laughing ghosts 
that cross a man's mind that are part of the twilight zone. So Martin learned something these captives needed to remember. The past isn't always what you think. And they were really worshiping the past and not God. But not only is our psalmist stuck in the past, but it's the wrong thing about the past. He's not exalting in the right thing. Uh, And much praise for Jerusalem in the Psalms. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Many of the Psalms end with praise for Jerusalem. Uh, But highest joy? I think not. Uh, Consider these other verses that give us a different perspective on the place Jerusalem and the temple should hold. Acts 7, Stephen says, uh, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Uh, Their praise isn't located at a certain spot. In other words, they recognize God is everywhere. Now, is worship in Jerusalem good? Absolutely. But they were confusing a good thing with the best thing. And when you do that, when you misplace the good thing and put it too high, it goes bad. I commend the captives for their directness here. And it it makes our job easier uh, seeing what is going on here. Um, Because sometimes... It's difficult to discern when something has trumped God in our lives. It's usually something good, even very good, family, country, or ministry even. Uh, But I challenge you, and I challenge myself, to look within if, like the captives, this has happened in our life as well. C.S. Lewis talks about the idea of longing, desires that are not bad in themselves, necessarily, but are really longings that only God can satisfy. And uh, nobody says it quite like he does, so I'll read what he writes here. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually happened or appeared in our existence. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if it were a settled matter. And he mentions a poet here. He says, Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments of his own past. But all that is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have not found the thing itself, but only the remainder of it, the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, 
and news from a country we have never yet visited. Lewis here mentions longing and memory and nostalgia, and the captives of our psalm are wrapped up in these things. They are longing for the past. I don't think it's always idolatry to long for the past, but in this case, it's a longing that keeps them from worshiping God. Finally, lastly, uh, they take joy in God's curse rather than his blessing. They take joy in God's cursing rather than his blessing. Look again at Psalm 8, uh, verse 8 rather, and maybe you are a bit jolted by this, as I think we should be when we read it. Uh, Verse 8 and 9 says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is a shocking end to a psalm of praise. And I think uh, the end is like this because uh, in one sense it's meant to cause us to consider what has come before it, whether or not we have read those things rightly. And so when we see this, we wonder, is the psalmist's heart in the right place? And I think no. I have a hard time seeing how this is a redemptive moment and how we are to enter into uh, the joy that the psalmist feels at seeing children killed violently. And so as we look back, uh, I suggest that it's not so good that they refuse to worship God in a foreign land, and that perhaps God, and not Jerusalem itself, should be their highest joy. And of course, that they should take praise and joy in God's blessing of others and of themselves, and not in God's cursing of them. Resentment has taken hold. Uh, How does desire for Jerusalem, for the songs of the past, for the life of the past, turn into taking joy at the death of children? Thankfully, this is a place I doubt any of us have ever gone, even in our deepest of hearts. But the psalm paints the full picture, the full map, along with the conclusion. Their praise of God has been contingent, depending on the right circumstances. This may seem somewhat innocuous, But then they have exalted the wrong things. Again, not bad things, but there's been a miscalculation. Even small miscalculations can have a devastating effect when extrapolated over years and years because they end at a place far, far away from where they should be, a place where they are taking joy in the destruction and pain of others. They're taking joy in God's curse rather than his blessing. So what is the answer? As we close here, well, if we go back and consider those tumultuous times for Israel, think about some of the problems that we mentioned at the beginning over those three periods in their history. Lack of a king to bring stability. Lack of courage in their leaders. Um, No priesthood because of the destruction of the temple. No sacrifice because of the destruction of the temple. No visible sign of God's blessing. The answer for Israel, the ultimate answer, is the same as it is for us, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the king, the only king, who can reign over a perfect kingdom and who isn't at least a little bit corrupt. He is also our high priest, our lifeline, our point of connection to God the Father. He is our sacrifice the final sacrifice that makes the whole system that took place at the temple unnecessary. And of course, far beyond the temple, he is a visible sign, 
the best possible visible sign of God's blessing. We don't need a building set up on a mountain to know God is present and with us. We have the person of Jesus Christ. And as to the final verse where the captives take joy in God's cursing rather than his blessing, there is one other place in the Bible that came to my mind where someone takes joy in the death of someone's child. And that's God taking joy in the death of his own son. Uh, It says in Isaiah 53, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. It says it pleased the Lord to put his son to death on our behalf for our sanctification. Now here, of course, the circumstances are the opposite. What brings the captives joy is seeing God's cursing, seeing justice handed out is what brings the captives joy. What brings God joy is seeing grace handed out. And that's why it pleased God that Jesus should suffer. The captives visualize children being dashed upon the rocks. God does, in fact, dash his own son on the rock of Calvary on our behalf. So, going forward today, may our praise of God not be contingent. May it be robust, flourishing in whatever context we find ourselves. May we not confuse good things for the best thing, God himself, and may we take joy in God's grace and not forget the grace that he showed his son uh, on the rock of Calvary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, It's pure, it's good, it's hard as nails. It cuts um, and pierces and it comforts. It does all of these things. Um, God, it remains our uh, source of truth. Uh, And as we've seen today, God, your son, is the answer to all of the problems that our world is experiencing right now, but he is also the answer to the problems we may individually and personally be feeling as well. God, I pray that we would fall back on him, uh, our high priest, our ultimate sacrifice, our example, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.